0: So we can do two sessions. We can do one, have a, a little break, uh, and then do a second one. And um, the way I like to do this is not going outside the Bible. So we're going to actually look at a Bible story uh, in Genesis, and then we're going to see the reflection of that in Acts in the New Testament. And I think that if we can grasp this, then it's going to help us understand God's. Uh, missional imperative and how that works out in our everyday lives wherever we live um, is what I hope will happen but we'll see Um, and the story in Genesis that I want to look at is uh, Genesis chapters 10 to 12 and it's Nimrod and Abraham okay Um, and to set the scene the world is broken so since Genesis 3 the world's broken there's sin and pain and mess and people killing each other and people hating each other and it's very early in the world but it's already falling apart um, but then what happens in Genesis chapter 10 is you get an amazing chapter where what you see is that God loves diversity okay so the big message of Genesis chapter 10 is that God loves cultural and ethnic Diversity. And what happens all the way, the command to Adam and Eve in the garden was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. When Noah and his sons come out of the ark, God says exactly the same thing to them in Genesis chapter 9 be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Spread out. And um, in chapter 10, you see a fulfillment of that. So they've come out of the ark, and then you, they start spreading out in the world, and you get this refrain all the way through chapter 10. Um, From these, the people spread out in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans in their nations. So the picture in Genesis chapter 10 is these people go over here and develop their own language and their own culture and they're living in a certain way. And then these people go over here and they develop their own language and their own culture and they're living in a certain way. And so they're spreading out around the world. And that's good. That's what God had always wanted people to do. And Genesis chapter 10, you have a list of 70 nations. And all the way through the Bible, 70 is the picture of, um, again, it's seven, the perfect number, times 10, the kind of the number of size, Uh, but it's the picture of all the nations. So when Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends them out, he sends out the 12, and then he sends out the 70. It's like gospel to Israel, gospel to all the world. Um, When Moses um, sees the Holy Spirit come on people, it, it comes on 70 people, and it's a symbol of Uh, the Holy Spirit coming to the whole world. So 70 is this picture of all the nations of the world, kind of symbolically. Does that make sense? And so what you've got here is all the nations of the world, people spreading out, and they've all got their own language, their own culture, their own way of doing things, and that's good. And God's sitting in heaven going, that's what I wanted. But then you get this guy Nimrod emerges. And in English culture, we don't use the word Nimrod very much. In the Middle East, it's quite a common People will say, oh, you're such a Nimrod. (laughs) And it means you're like a bit hard, a bit strong, a bit too big, a bit too proud. And that's actually what we see here in Nimrod. Uh, Chapter 10 and verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man or a big man. He's the first big man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like... Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's Babylon. And Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. And so we don't know whether he was a big man physically, probably, um, but also politically. Uh, Before the Lord is a contentious translation. Um, And it might make more sense if he was actually kind of standing against the Lord, standing opposed to or opposite in front of the Lord. Um, This is the first use of the word kingdom in the Bible. It's going to be a big word in the Bible, but it's negative here. Nimrod has a kingdom. Um, And we see the first appearance of Babylon here. And Babylon is going to be the enemy of the people of God all the way through the Bible, even as far as Revelation. And so he's a bad guy. He's a villain, Nimrod. And he emerges, and he says, the world is broken, I'm going to fix it. I'm the guy, okay? And so then we come to chapter 11, and we see suddenly, we, we read, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And you're like, hang on, I thought it was going well, and we had lots of different languages and lots of cultural diversity, but now we've got one language, what's happening? What's happening? And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. We've just seen that's where Nimrod is building his city. And they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Okay, so what is happening here? What's, what's happening in this story? What's the difference between chapter 10 and chapter 11? Um, you may have heard it explained in the past in a different way to this. Um, so bear with me, but I actually think how you interpret this story is really important for how you read a lot of the Bible. I think it's actually quite an important story. Nimrod has this strategy of one language, one city, and one temple. And so what he's trying to do, is trying to be the big guy. He's the first tyrant. He's, this is the first empire. Empire as a negative word. This is the first person who wants to impose his stamp on the world. And this is how he does it. He says, we're going to have one language now. So there were lots of languages, but now he's imposing one state language. Why do you do that? To control people. And um, to eliminate the problems in the world, what I'm going to do is I'm going to eliminate difference. So one language eliminates difference. It makes it much easier to govern. That's what empires have always done. Look at South America. There used to be thousands of languages in South America. Okay? If you go there now, what do they speak in Argentina? Spanish. What do they speak in Peru? Spanish. What do they speak in Chile? Spanish. What do they speak in Ecuador? Spanish. What happened? The Spanish came and they said, if we're going to govern this continent, we're going to impose one state language. We're going to kill indigenous tribal languages and we're going to flatten everything. It will make it simpler and we can control here. Okay. Lots of empires did this. The Chinese empire did the same thing. The Arab empire did the same thing. What do they speak all the way across North Africa? Arabic. Yeah, the British Empire did the same thing in some places. So, Argentinian theologian Jose Miguel Bonino he says this about the conquest of South America: to accept the new language meant to, in other words, Spanish meant to deny everything that gave meaning to their lives, stories, traditions the naming of things, the music of words, the sounds of love. To keep their own language, however, meant to be a stranger in their own land, to be outside the law, to be unable to negotiate and understand the language of power. So the jump from Genesis 10, where everyone's got different languages and is scattered over the world, to Genesis 11, where people are being gathered in one place and now they only speak one language, That's because of empire. That's Nimrod saying, I'm going to fix the brokenness of the world and I'm going to do it by making everyone the same. He also has one city. So we read here about the building of the city. They've got bricks. They build a city and they say to everyone, come, let's let's gather everyone into this one place. And so we see here people settling. Interesting note Culturally, for us, settled is a good word. In Genesis, it's nearly always a bad word. Because God has told the people to go, to scatter, to fill the earth. But the people are going, we don't want to. We want to settle. We see this verb here, come, repeated come here, come, gather, gather. And there's a hint here that they're remembering the flood. You know, lest we be dispersed over the. So it's like um, Josephus said, you know, the bricks with the bitumen, that's what um, the ark was covered in to make it waterproof. It's kind of going, uh, we're going to build a waterproof city <laughs> so that if a flood comes again, this time we'll be safe because we'll have waterproof bricks on our houses to keep us safe. So one city eliminates danger, one language eliminates difference, one city eliminates danger. And then one temple to eliminate dispersal. So this tower that reaches to the heavens, that's probably a temple. It's a bridge between heaven and earth. It's a, it's a way of going, we've got access to heaven now. And we think of it as pride in a vertical sense often, like mankind trying to reach God. It's probably more pride in a horizontal sense. He's saying no one else can access God from where they are. If you want to access God, you have to come here and worship in my temple and do it my way. This is where the bridge to heaven is. This is where the tower is. So he's eliminating dispersal because he's saying if you want, if you want. So he's got one city, one language and one temple. And that's his strategy. And empire has often done that in history. And we're going to see why that's important. How did God feel about Nimrod's plan? We read in verse 7. God says, come, let us go down there and mix up their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. When God says, let us go down... That is often an act of grace or deliverance. God came down to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt. But that deliverance is a two-sided coin. It's also going to be a judgment on the oppressor. So when God came down in Egypt, he smashed Pharaoh and he rescued the Israelites. So it's this two-sided coin. Smash the proud, rescue the oppressed. Okay? When God comes down here, he does the same thing. He smashes Nimrod and his project and his cronies. But he liberates the people. Think about it. He was using slaves to build all this stuff. That's what everyone was doing in the ancient world. They'd lost their languages, they'd been gathered into this place. God comes down, he judges Nimrod, and then he he disperses people back over the earth. That was what he always wanted. That was the good that's what he wants is for people to be scattered, and he gives them their languages back. And then, because we read the Bible as a whole, we go from chapter 10 and chapter 11, we come into chapter 12, and what we're going to see here is God's way of doing mission, which is a rebuke to Nimrod's way of doing mission. It's the opposite, and he does it by calling this man Abraham. And what we're going to see is a significant contrast between who Nimrod is and who Abraham is. It's like the contrast that we saw earlier between Rahab and Achan. You get a lot of these contrasts in the Bible. You get two characters next to each other in the Bible. And you're supposed to look at them and go, one shows you God's way and one shows you God's not way. So God turns away from the city and the big ambitious proud project and he chooses a small man from the margins. Abraham's family was probably one of the freed families who've come out of the Babylon project and now they're over there in Ur. The family is a genetic cul-de-sac. What we read in the end of chapter 11 is that there's a, a lot of barrenness, sterility. It's a very small family they're struggling to have lots of children amongst all of the brothers. And so it's not a great plan for starting a whole new family in the world. He chooses a small guy, okay? And um, Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, uh, someone said to him, why, why do you think God chose you to do such amazing things in China, see so many thousands of people come to faith? And he said, I think God was looking around trying to find someone small enough to use, and he found me. And that's what I think we see here with Abraham. You get a little guy from the margins. God does that all the way through the Bible. You know, David, little shepherd boy, overlooked by the rest of his family. And God's always picking these small people. And um, so we just read the first three verses of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abraham, and hold this text against what we just read in the Nimrod text in chapter 11. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when anyone talks about mission, the theology of mission will always center on these verses, because this is where God launches his new family. This is where God shows his hand. You know, that phrase comes from poker where you wait and you see what everyone else is going to do, and then you show your hand. God's watched, he's watched Nimrod's project, and now God is showing his project, okay? This is the launch of what we see about God's mission impulse, but you have to read it in the context of Nimrod's project. The Bible doesn't start in Genesis 12, okay? Usually the answer to questions in the Bible is zoom out and look at the chapter before it and the chapter after it, that will help you, okay? Um, the contrast between these two guys is significant. Abram is small and vulnerable. Nimrod was a big man. Nimrod's his story was dominated by come. Come to the city. Come, let us build. Come, come, come. Abram's story is dominated by the word go. God says to him, go to the land. Go from your father's house. Go. Nimrod said, Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's be famous. God said to Abraham, I will make your name great. Abraham is told to leave all of the cultural sources of honor. Leave your land, leave your family, leave your father's house. Those are the things that culturally embed you in honor. He's told to leave all of those things. Nimrod is trying to create his own honour. God says, leave everything that gives you honour and I will make your name great. Entrust your honour to me. Nimrod, let's remember, had tried to eliminate difference by making one language. To Abraham, God says, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. That's Genesis 10 language. That's spread out And this family of the earth over here, in their culture, in their place, in their language, and this family over here, in their culture, in their place, all the families will be blessed by you. It's family language, not empire language. So it's go there and bless those people. Go there and bless those people. It's going to be different in different places, but it's blessing to all the families of the earth. Nimrod had tried to eliminate danger by building one city, waterproof bricks, nice and safe lest we be dispersed, dominated by kind of fear and paranoia. God tells Abraham to leave a city and to leave everything that made him safe and to go on a dangerous journey. In the ancient world, in the Bible, whenever you see travel, it's always dangerous. Travel is always dangerous. And yet he tells him to go on this. And when Abraham hits the promised land, what does he experience? Famine. Civil war, difficulty, straightaway challenges, vulnerability. But that's God's strategy. Don't try and keep yourself safe. Put yourself in a vulnerable space and entrust yourself to me. And Nimrod had tried to eliminate dispersal by having one temple so he can control worship, so he, he controls access to God. Abraham, when he goes... He builds altars wherever he goes. He goes along, he goes, Oh, this is a nice tree. I'm gonna build an altar here and give thanks to God. Oh, this is a nice mountaintop. I'm gonna build an altar here and give thanks to God. He understands that God is portable. He understands that access to God is not controlled by some powerful man who says, When you can or can't pray. He builds altars wherever he goes. Bernard Anderson, he says this. The story of Abraham is the paradigm of a new people through whom all the families of humankind are to experience blessing, not by surrendering, and this is where this gets so important, friends, okay? Not by surrendering their ethnic identities, but by being embraced within the saving purpose of the God who rejoices in the diversity of, of the creation. God loves diversity. And mission is supposed to be Abraham going to lots of different places to bring blessing in lots of different contexts, dominated by go and bless rather than come and be controlled, come and be conformed. So what you have, if you want some slightly bigger words, Nimrod's project was all about homogenizing, making everyone the same. Abraham's project is all about however I'm going to pronounce it heterogenizing (laughs) celebrating difference and bringing blessing where that difference lives if we can get this we will get mission yeah it's not come and become like us it's how can we go and become like you and this will have huge implications all the way through your mission thinking, which is where we will get to. So just to summarise, and then we'll have a little break. And then we're going to look at Pentecost, which is where this same dynamic plays out in the New Testament. Okay, but just to summarise, Nimrod's story is dominated by come. Abram's story is dominated by go. Nimrod is about this one language. Abram's story is going to lead to a trajectory of plurality of language. Nimrod is trying to gather to one temple. Abram's story is build altars wherever you go. Nimrod builds a city. Abraham is told to leave a city. Nimrod's story is about people who settle, and it's about bricks. Abram's story, he lives in tents. Remember, that's what he's celebrated for in Hebrews. He left a city and he lived in tents because he knew that he had a city one day whose architect and builder was God. He's celebrated for his non-settling, non-conformity. Nimrod's story is about power and bigness. Abraham's story is about vulnerability and smallness. Nimrod's story is, let's make a name for ourselves. Abraham entrusts his honor to God, and God says, I will make a name for you. Nimrod resists the fear of being scattered. Abraham moves towards fear. He embraces the fear of the unknown. Go to the place that I will tell you. I'm not even going to tell you where I'm sending you. You'll know when you get there. <laughs> Nimrod resists the fear of being scattered. Abraham embraces the fear. Of the unknown. Nimrod's story, therefore, it's a rebellion. It's a direct disobedience. God had said, fill the earth, and Nimrod's gone, no, don't think I will. I think I'll tell the whole earth to come here. Whereas Abraham is obedient to the original call to Adam and Eve. Nimrod, therefore, is judged, and his tower and his project is smashed. Abraham is blessed, and his descendants are blessed. Okay? We're going to have a break there. Let you digest that. You can tell I really ca- this really matters that we get this tension. It's going to help us so much in our Christian journey. We'll have a break, 15 minutes, cup of tea, fresh air, and then we'll be back for our final session. Okay, we're going to do a final session. And um, I'm aware that this way of reading this story might be different to what you've heard before. I would say don't take my word for it. Go away and do some reading and some exploring. And what you'll find is these are very, very ancient documents, these scriptures, and with thousands of years' worth of interpretation. And you will find some people have always read it that actually the curse of Babel and everyone having different languages was a curse from God that needed undoing. Uh, and other people have read it that actually Nimrod was the problem and that God coming down is a way of, of getting his plan back on track in the way that I've read it. And what you'll find is that uh, people have interpreted things depending on their own situation, obviously. So people that were in the middle of empire or proudly central to the world have often read that everyone being together and in one place and being the same was a good thing. Uh, but people that were from the margins of the world who had been oppressed and had been on the hard end of empire uh, saw actually the liberating action of God as the good thing. And so I, I would just say you, when you read people on stuff, you need, you need to think about where are they coming from and how have they and I know that's quite a grown-up way of talking about interpretation, but it comes really important when you when you hit two conflicting interpretations about a passage. And I'm arguing that how you read that passage affects how you read the rest of your Bible. Um, And we're going to go now into the New Testament and into the Pentecost moment, uh, which, certainly from a New Testament point of view, is the launch of global mission, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And. again, as we think ourselves into the story and think about the Spirit coming in order to propel people in the same trajectory as Abraham to go and to bless, um, that we understand that the coming of the Spirit is very linked to mission and our mission. And so uh, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome? both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And that's the big question, is what does this mean? And so, when you get to the New Testament and the Jerusalem temple, it's become very much like Nimrod's plan actually the way that the, the Jewish elite were structuring worship is one language, one city, one temple just like Nimrod so one language we have a sacred language, Hebrew so if you, in normal life you might speak Aramaic or Greek but when you come to the temple you have to pray in Hebrew them's the rules and so they've got one language, so for, for a festival like Pentecost you've got Jews from all over, we've just read all the places that they were from but they've come to Jerusalem they would come actually for a big chunk, they would come for Passover and then they would stay the 50 days and also celebrate Pentecost and then go because you get your money's worth that way on your pilgrimage you get to two, two festivals for the price of one, so people would often come end of March and stay right through till May um, and so they've come from all over but They've, they've had to come to the one city, because this is the, the centre, you, you want to come and be part of our community, even if you live far away, you have to come here, and the one temple. So they've, they've travelled from all over the world to worship there, but actually, you can only really get your prayers heard in the Jerusalem temple, not when you're living in Rome or whatever. So you've ended up with one language, one city, one temple. You've got this, this controlled, centred sense of religion. And Jesus, in his whole ministry, is mitigating against this. So he'll go and heal people outside the temple. Um, He'll go to... uh, There's times when he speaks to people, not in Hebrew, but in everyday language, like the Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. he, He raises someone from the dead, not using the holy language of Hebrew, but using her everyday language, Aramaic. When he teaches the Lord's Prayer... And he teaches them to pray, Abba, uh, uh, our Father in heaven, in you know, this Abba word. That's not Hebrew. That's Aramaic. It's the everyday business, dirty, normal language. So he's pushing against this idea of one special holy language and going, you can pray in your normal language. You can raise people from the dead in your normal language. And Jesus is pushing away from this idea of one special temple and one special city. But in Pentecost, we see that absolutely so. God comes down at Pentecost just like he came down at Babel by the Spirit here and he does the same thing. He gives people back their languages and then he scatters them back to their nations and they start churches all over the world. Think about it, you've paid a fortune, you've waited your whole life to do your pilgrimage to Jerusalem because you think that's where God is. You've come all the way here You've left your business for two months. You've traveled on a ship that might sink. You know, you've, you've risked everything. You're like, well, oh, I've traveled to Jerusalem. I've made my pilgrimage. This is my moment in life to meet God. God comes down and says, actually, I can hear someone praying in my language. For, <laughs> I could have had that back home, you know. And, and the Spirit comes and, and pushes them, compels them back to their language. Back to It's an amazing thing. You're there thinking God only speaks Hebrew. Um, you know, the Armenians, oldest Christian country in the world, the Armenians believe that God only speaks Armenian. And they say next to God in, in heaven, there's a little Armenian priest who speaks all the languages of the world. And when you pray, God, this priest translates your prayer from English into Armenian and gives it to God because God only speaks Armenian. <laughs> but every, every culture has kind of had this sense of a holy language. You know, in, for Muslims, it's 7th century Arabic. You want to pray, you have to learn a kind of Arabic that's actually extinct because that's the language of God. In the Middle Ages, it was Latin. And actually, translating your Bible into English or German or French was illegal. And the guy that translated the Bible into English, who did it illegally, got killed for it. Because the Pope was saying, imagine the chaos if everyone could read the Bible in their own language. Suddenly, they'd all be interpreting it and we wouldn't have control over it anymore. So keep it in Latin to keep it safe. And so translatability has always been a battleground for religion. And what the Spirit does here is he comes down and he gives honour to all the indigenous languages. And he gives honour to these people. They're there and they hear the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own language. And they, oh my goodness, I don't have to learn Hebrew. God speaks my language. It's a massively important moment. And it liberates people, because language is powerful. And I find this difficult to teach to English people, if I'm honest, because English people don't tend to learn other languages. There's a joke in lots of parts of the world that I go to. They say, what language are we going to speak in heaven? And everyone says English, because God is merciful. He knows that English people can't learn another language. (laughs) Whereas a lot of my friends speak five or six languages. You know, like that's the world that they live in. Uh, and so to, 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 to help you understand that language is dignity and access to God, in your, the, the privilege of praying in your mother tongue is off the charts. I've led Turkish Muslims to faith over the years, and they speak Turkish, that's their language, not Arabic. But they've been told as Muslims their whole life, if you want to pray, you have to pray in Arabic. So they've memorised Arabic prayers, but they don't understand them. But that's what, and the first time you sit with a Turkish guy and you say, we're going to pray now to our father, Pray in Turkish, and people are sobbing. You mean God can receive my normal language? I don't need some holy language somewhere. This is the Pentecost moment. It's hugely important. And, 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 and within language, you have culture, you have memory, you have family, you have your stories, your traditions, your ways. That's all embedded in your language. And so to be told suddenly that God honours your language and that God comes to you and by the Spirit shows that your language matters, that gives value to your culture, your family, your tradition, your village, your story, where you come from, your background, your history. It, It values all of that. And that has huge missionary implications. Because, yes, Sorry, just to add um, to what you said, what you just said. Because I used to be a Muslim and um, I remember there when we we're praying, we have to pray in Arabic. I don't even understand what I'm saying, but I just say you know, so you're very it's very correct what you wow. just say. I don't understand anything, but we have to pray in that language anyway. So you understand, you don't understand as like, the language you're praying. So what a great privilege we've got in Christ, you know, that we can speak in our dialect
1: and understand us.
0: Wow. Yeah, thank you. Wow, it's powerful. Thank you. And um, what happens is they go back to their countries and they, they start communities all over the world. So, this is where the church is born. You think about it, when Paul writes Romans, he doesn't plant the church in Rome. It's already there. And We read in this passage, there were people from Rome here. This is where the church in Rome started. They came, they heard it, they're all going to get hear the gospel preached by Peter and get baptized in a minute, and then they're all going to go home and, and start communities all over the world. So the church starts in Armenia here, it starts in Iran here, it starts in Turkey here. You know, you just read the list of countries. And... Um, and, and so you've got this moment where the Spirit comes and says, you don't all need to come here, go, go to your space. So it's, it's go, not come. And so Karl Muller, he says here, the sin of Babel was its quest for unity, one interpretation, one reading, one people, which was an abandonment of creational diversity and plurality in favour of exclusion and violence. And Bernard Anderson says, the Babel story, as traditionally interpreted, has been an obstacle, an obstacle to developing a theology of pluralism. In other words, by pluralism, we don't mean lots of beliefs in lots of different gods, but we mean the ability to believe in God in your own cultural context, in your own space, in your own language. And that's risky. You know, that's why the Pope didn't want people to read the Bible outside Latin, because... Translation is always got a risk to it. Translation is like one guy, Lamine Sane, West African theologian. He said, "Translation is like firing a bullet from a gun. Once you've released it, you don't know what's going to happen." Translation is dangerous because you can't control it. It goes. You know, we plant Tur- we plant churches in Turkey in Turkish, and um, there's no tradition of. Christian interpretation in Turkish so people have a Turkish Bible they're praying in Turkish like anything could happen (laughs) do you know what I mean? but like that's that's exciting, it's liberating that's where the Holy Spirit comes in And, and, and that's what happens here all these people go back to their own nations they start churches, they've received the Holy Spirit that's all they've got, they haven't even got a Bible yet and god seems to be okay with that and there's a tradition of mission linked to empire that has been you know we'll we'll go and we'll export the gospel plus a whole load of other stuff so missionaries go to africa 200 years ago and go you know we'll give you the gospel but also let's give you some civilization and we don't want you to dress like that. So we'll also export some three-piece suits for you to wear. And we'll build you some church buildings out of bricks, even though it's very hot here. <laughs> and we'll give you archdeacons and organs and because we like them at home. And so they'll help you as well. So it's the gospel plus a whole load of European cultural righteousness. Um, you know, a lot of my African friends now, uh, they'll wear a suit to church on Sunday. And I'll go, why are you wearing a suit? I'm just wearing a puma top. And they'll go... You gave us the suits. <laughs> it's your fault, you know? <laughs> and, and so there, there's been missionary tradition that's been the gospel plus a whole load of other stuff. And we still do that. Probably do it in Manchester. See someone coming off an estate that's got, you know, I don't know, wears tracksuits every day and you go, well, you come to church, you need to wear jeans now. <laughs> or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, if you want to belong here, let's add some stuff to you. Yes, sir. When I was in my teens, I was in a church, it was a brethren church. And we were all weekend hippies and we came dressed in tall and embroidered jeans and you name it. And then one day we thought, perhaps we should smart up. So we all put on suits and jackets and the girls came in posh dresses. And one of the elders came to us afterwards and said, look, when you do that, the people who were in from outside, they won't come in anymore. You can please go back to dressing. Brilliant brilliant I've got a mate in our church he's a builder and all week he's in a space where people use really edgy language all day all week that's the world that he lives in and he often hosts on a Sunday he's hosting tomorrow actually and he's really nervous all the time because he's like something's going to come out of my mouth that's going to offend everybody but he's going from a world that he's immersed in and are you saying well you need to be a different person on a Sunday that's not what we believe And so uh, there can be a real tension around these things. Our church in Turkey, um, nearly everyone in the area that we lived in, Istanbul, smokes. Uh, And so everyone was coming to... You know, these are brand new Christians. No Christian history, no Christian family, whatever. People are coming to faith. They're going through an enormous curve in a short period of time, coming to faith out of Islam. You know, their families reject them... Their dads kick them out of their homes. Often people get attacked. They lose their jobs. Like it's high pressure environment to come to faith, okay? Smoking's the least of your worries. <laughs> seriously, seriously though, okay? And we actually got to the point where we understood when we've done worshipping and praying and testimonies and stuff, if we're also going to do a sermon, people can't concentrate that long without a cigarette. So we built we in built a cigarette break, yeah, like we'll worship and pray and testimonies and stuff. Go outside, have a quick cigarette, come back and then we'll preach. I had a visiting pastor from America, shocked. You're encouraging people to smoke. You're encouraging, like, and you're and trying to say, can you understand the, like, the trajectory of these people and where they've come from and where they are now? Smoking's the, we'll get there one day. Smoking's the least of our worries. Let's think about this trajectory that people are on. Uh, rather than imposing something that just because it's important in America that Christians don't smoke, why should we suddenly just kind of impose, you're giving the gospel plus something. And so that's what we see here. Now, let's think about Jesus for a moment. If you, if you think you've got your nimrod Abraham contrast, and then think about Jesus... From the family of Abraham, Jesus is a little guy. Really, he's born in a tiny, insignificant village in the margins of the world. He's born actually under empire, in a pressurised environment. You know, the reason that they're in Bethlehem is because the Roman Empire have said everyone has to go back to their own village to be registered. The empire is moving people around, controlling people, forcing them to be in different places. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a context of oppression and inequality, and that's what Jesus is born into. Um, he's born vulnerable. The moment he's born, Herod and his kill teams come and try and kill all the babies in the village, remember? And Jesus has to run away. He's a refugee. He immediately has to become a stateless person and flee for their lives. Like Abraham, Jesus is itinerant. He never settles in his three-year ministry. He's moving around, led by the Spirit, going to different places um, and bringing the presence of God wherever he goes. So people could only experience forgiveness in the temple, but then Jesus, not in the temple, says to someone, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, You can only get healed in the temple, whereas Jesus goes outside the temple and heals people. And so he's taking the temple to people. He's the temple on the streets He's the place where people can meet with God and he's moving around and touching people. He's he's going, you don't have to go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's come to you. You don't have to go to God, God's come to you. You don't have to find your way to get to him, he's come looking for you. Um, And John said, didn't he, the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. And that word is Tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, became this tent of the presence of God that's moving around and going to people. Jesus embraces fear and risk and the unknown and danger. He becomes of no reputation. He does what Abraham does. He leaves, think about it, his father's house, his home, because that's heaven. Those are his sources of honor. And he leaves all of those and he becomes a a, a nobody. So God doesn't send the world, God doesn't save the world by sending someone big and powerful and important like Nimrod. God doesn't save the world through Rome or even Jerusalem, the center of empire. God saves the world through sending someone small and vulnerable into the margins of the world, into a little village, Bethlehem. And so therefore... Missioned on God's way, there will be difference, there will be danger, and there will be dispersal. And this is where the rubber hits the road for us as Christians, okay? So there will be difference. And we've, we've just had a bit of conversation about some of those things. In, in the world that I function in, what that means is when you share the gospel with people... You're not trying to make them like you, you're trying to become like them. So part of what we do is help people move to other countries on mission. And it's, you go somewhere, for the first two years all you're gonna do is study language. So I'm, next week I'm flying to a Middle Eastern country to visit a team of ours who've been there for a year. And all they've done for this year is sat in a classroom learning language. And they're dying. (laughs) It's not what we signed up for. It is what you signed up for. It's a hard language, Arabic. But they've got to study Arabic for three years before they could before they're any use to anyone. Because there's no point preaching the gospel in English in the country they're in. So that's hard work. That's three years of like that's that's what you're doing, guys. We plant churches in other languages there's no point me going to Istanbul and starting an English-speaking church. I might skim off a few foreigners, but I'm not going to reach Turkish people whose heart language is Turkish. So Christians are actually champions of diversity. It's written into the scripture right from the beginning. It really matters to us. We celebrate difference. And everyone in whatever space you're in, you can do that you can champion you can constantly think god loves difference isn't it exciting that this person's different from me isn't it great to eat different kinds of food that in heaven we're just not going to eat cucumber sandwiches hallelujah <laughs> isn't it great there's people in our churches that have different emphases and different stuff that they care about and people do family different and marriage different and Raise their kids different, and that's that's brilliant. And then that impacts. Okay, then what does that mean in my church? If our evening groups are always at eight pm because all the English people put their kids in bed at seven pm, and all the Africans laugh at us because their kids stay up as long as they do, and they're like, "Don't you like your kids?" (laughs) (laughs) So, what does that mean then for small groups in my church? And so, because we love diversity, it affects the way we do lots of things. And in heaven. When we read in Revelation, around the throne of God and around the Lamb, we saw every tribe and every tongue. That's every language. So in heaven, there's going to be loads of languages. And what's exciting is, because we've got forever, we're going to be able to learn all the different languages and hang out with all these brothers. Oh, I want to hear some stories from Chinese brothers and sisters. Do you know what I mean? And Mandarin's hard to learn, but I'll have a long time and I'll figure it out, and then I can sit and hear their stories. That's how heaven's going to work. Lots of languages. Lots of cultures. Lots of different ways of doing it. <sighs> Do you know? Amazing. And so there will be difference in Christian mission. And if you feel different, then that's a good thing. You're in the right place. Church is for people who feel different. Secondly, there will be Danger. And we can't miss this bit. The the difference between Nimrod and Abraham is about trying to mitigate risk and danger or moving towards fear. And so for Christians, vulnerability, fear, risk, danger is part of our story. And um, in Turkey at the moment, my context um, is getting really difficult for Christians. But what does that that mean for someone who's called to be a Christian in Turkey? It means that we have to understand that danger is part of their deal. Um, But it might get difficult for Christians in England in the next 20 years. And if if that's not part of our understanding, then we'll think, oh no, I I can't be a Christian in a difficult space. But it's part of being a Christian. And... um, Jesus, his mission strategy, says to his disciples, behold, I send you out like lambs among wolves. Not being funny, that's a terrible strategy. That's a terrible strategy. If you've got lambs, you're supposed to like, look after them, protect them, good shepherd, hey. Jesus is like, hey, lambs, off you go among wolves. What do wolves do to lambs? Eat them and in not a pretty way. <laughs> but you know, when we send people, when we move as families, you know, maybe you, God calls you to move into one of the scariest states in Manchester, go live there as a family. You think, man alive, that's, what about my kids? They're not going to have a nice posh school to go to. They're going to have to go to the, That's scary, you know. It's like, yeah, but God calls you to go. And we're not sitting waiting for people to come, we go mission isn't dominated by come. It's not, we'll open our church on a Sunday and hope some people turn up. It's who isn't coming. Okay, then how do we go to them? This sister's going right now. There's obedience to the gospel. Go! (laughs) She doesn't want to wait any longer. And so it becomes really important, actually, the, the vulnerability risk piece. A lot of English Christianity is quite risk-averse uh, because we, we take the, the biblical value of stewardship and we think what's important is to steward and look after. And that's important. But there's also a lot of risk in the, in the Bible. And in, Nimrod's trying to mitigate it and Abraham has to move towards it. And Jesus moves towards it. He doesn't stay in heaven where it's safe. comes into a scary world where they're going to kill him and often in mission stuff um, people do the like Isaiah 6 appeal you know where the Lord says who will go for us and who shall we send and then Isaiah says here I am send me which is a fantastic kind of call to mission no one reads the rest of the chapter the rest of Isaiah chapter 6 God goes okay fine you're going to go they're going to ignore you, they're going to hate you, they're going to persecute you and you'll die by being sawed in half under the reign of King Manasseh. Who wants to go now? But it's really important actually to say that. God calls us into this story, into this family, into this mission and part of that is it's going to be tough. Really tough. And the more unreached the place that you're going, the the more tough it is. And then thirdly and finally, there'll be dispersal. So this is about spreading out, moving, not settling. And guys, this is, this, is our, this is as much our story as Ruth is or Joshua is. So God is still calling people to go and to leave. And he says, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Yeah, I'll bless you. And then the blessing you've got, you take it and you bless other people. And that's like a river, isn't it? Just flowing. And so often what people do is turn the river into a reservoir. Damn it, and go, let's just keep the blessing here. (laughs) You know, so pastors are the worst at this. Pastors are like, no, let's gather all the people here. We don't want anyone to go (laughs) shut the back door. Um, Let's have a nice big church here, a nice big reservoir. But that's no. then, then it just gets stagnant. It's supposed to be, I'll bless you, so you'll bless others. It's supposed to be a river that flows to the nations. Stop building dams. And so if there are people in your world who are from other nations, other cultures, go to them. Go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. T- turn up at the house. <laughs> that's, that's what the Bible says, Go. In Christianity, it's the strong who change, not the weak. So don't wait for people to change and come. You change and go. So mission should be dominated by go and not by come. And um, that's what I wanted to say. And what I think we should do is just pray a little bit. Is that okay? Um, I might pray a bit of a dangerous prayer. Because you, I, I don't think you can talk about this stuff and then kind of carry on. And this is, this is real for me. Uh, I took my family when I had four kids under the age of six and we went and lived in Turkey. Because God told us to go. And we spent two years just studying Turkish and then planting churches. And God's done some extraordinary things. It's also been incredibly painful for my family. Um, And so often that's the story for people. There's like real glory and real pain. Um, But that's, I want you to know that because I'm saying these things with integrity. Um, And we're going to pray a little bit. Okay. Heavenly Father. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the beautiful bits that we've seen today. I also thank you for the challenging bits that we've seen today. I thank you that your word is difficult and challenging and we wrestle with it. I thank you for that, Lord. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and you propel and that you bless and that you send us to bless. I thank you for bringing us right into this story, into the family of Jesus, into the family of Abraham. I thank you this story is our story. I thank you this book's our book. Thank you this history is our history, Lord. I thank you, like Rahab, you took us out of the story we were in, and you brought us into your story. Like Ruth, we went from enemy to family. We went from outsider to insider, sons of wrath, to... Children of grace, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. And I just pray now for all of us, me included, all my brothers and sisters here. Please show us the next step in this mission that you've called us to. Please put that propulsion in us that propelled Abraham, that propelled the people after Pentecost. Put that in us, that propelled Jesus Lord, move us towards darkness, I pray. Give us courage. Lord, move us towards risk. Give us an appetite for adventure with you. Call us places without us knowing where we're going. Increase our faith. Take away our fear. Fill us with love. Let us, each one of us in this room, let us be champions of diversity, I pray. Let us love it, delight in it, celebrate in it, see the beauty of diversity. Almighty God, help us never to settle. Help us to build altars wherever we go. Although we're small and vulnerable, we entrust our safety to you. We entrust our honour to you. We entrust our lives to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. It's been a joy being with you today.